My name is Richard Henry, and you're listening to the COVID-19 Challenge podcast. So as we've discussed previously, wild-type humans, those who are young, healthy, thin, fit, active, don't suffer unduly from this virus. Now that's a very superficial, simple answer that sort of summarizes all the work we've done before. Um, but we can't all be young, healthy, thin, and fit. And so what can the rest of us do to mimic that human phenotype? Um, and it turns out there's quite a bit we can do, particularly based on understanding. And a lot of the stuff is being done, just, just as we've been taking chicken soup when we get sick all these years. There are, there are treatments out there, and they're all associated with COVID right now. But um, we're going to just try and make some sense of it and put those treatments into categories as to how and where they work. Um, and then um, it'll sort of make you feel a bit better about um, maybe even using some of those um, interventions. So the idea is to reduce aldosterone-mediated high blood pressure. So you want to get lean, wild type, and fit exercise. The, the, the aim is to reverse or reduce aldosterone effects. Remember, aldosterone has two effects. It works on inflammation. So it's activating innate immune, the innate immune uh, system from inside the cell, where the cell can, can literally um, initiate the, um, the um, inflammatory signal. <coughs> and, and um, send a message out to the rest of the body that's, that it's in trouble. Uh, this reaction is to both repair and repel. So repel invaders, destroy things, destroy the invaders and sometimes tissue, and then repair it all. And um, our immune systems can actually be skewed to be more inflammatory, or they can be more lethal and, and directed towards killing um, invaders. And so we have these M1, M2 phenotypes, um, and just by the way we live, we can actually direct our immune system to have a sort of a one of either of those personalities. Now it's a blend, but the immune system can be more inflammatory or less inflammatory. And the key mineral for this, well, comes no surprise to you, is zinc. Um, so um, our immune cells, our white cells, and uh, particularly cells from the thymus gland, the thymus gland itself, so our T cells. Um, really use the proteins in them are, are linked or are, uh, have binding sites for zinc which makes them work properly <clears throat> and efficiently and effectively and so being zinc deficient in just in a nutshell will increase our allergic response it'll both weaken the immune system's ability to kill and be effective <coughs> but will also advance the immune system's ability to make a big loud noise and um, and, and cause harm so zinc deficiency is fairly common, but it's not, it's not sort of epidemic. Um, in, in young people, it'll be those, the hallmark of zinc deficiency is malnutrition because uh, uh, humans who are zinc deficient, A, don't like eating and B, don't grow very well. So if you sort of stunted growth or thin or have an eating disorder around not wanting to eat, uh, zinc plays a, plays a key role in that. Uh, and then in the elderly, the zinc deficiency is associated with immune senescence. So a weakened immune system, particularly, again, those thymus-derived T cells, and you have a very weak immune response, and so uh, infections can become quite easily overwhelming, which is why the elderly often die of um, uh, infection. Um, and one of, the, one of the factors behind this is, is zinc deficiency. 
and the, and the downstream effects of that. So a, a cheap and simple effective way to optimize immune function is just to make sure that you have enough zinc. You don't need to overdose. Uh, too much zinc is almost as bad or worse than having too little zinc. Um, and it really is not harmful to be zinc, zinc replete. This lecture series is not about um, supplements and how to take them or when to take them, which is the best. So, um, but it's just a matter of finding out where all these pieces fit in. Um, you can also use zinc acutely when you're sick, um, but I think it's better to just live healthy and, uh, and set your immune system just as you set yourself up not to be using aldosterone very much so you can set your immune system up to be skewed away from being inflammatory by having normal healthy um, zinc levels. Next piece of the puzzle um, is um, oxidation. So we recall we talked about how uh, aldosterone-mediated raise in blood pressure increases ox ox oxidation production by the, the protein system called NADPH oxidase, so NOx actually, actually splitting an electron off, off a hydrogen atom and giving it to oxygen in order to subvert nitric oxide. So it's done intentionally by, by, the, by the blood vessel uh, in order to raise blood pressure, which when it's done on and off is, is easy, easily reversible with antioxidants made in our body. Um, but uh, when it's done continuously, will we'll result in excess oxidative stress. So anything that we can sort of bias away from pro-oxidation uh, would help. <coughs> so again, I'm going to introduce you to... Um, a, 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 a hormone that you've all heard about, vitamin D. So vitamin D is literally a hormone which is uh, a lipid-soluble hormone, so it's made from the uh, cholesterol backbone. And so it can enter the cell, can bind to a nuclear receptor, and switch on genes. So there seem to be about 400 genes that respond to vitamin D. And when you have enough vitamin D, you get an anti-inflammatory bias. So it works along with zinc, right? So zinc's going to affect the proteins that, that are in existence, and vitamin D is going to bring into existence proteins that are going to just, in a nutshell, give you an anti-inflammatory bias. So not surprising that they work well together. So where do we get our, our vitamin D? We get it, we get it from sunlight uh, normally, and um, uh, you can supplement it. But if you go out in the sun, which is what we've we've we evolved to do to be outside, um, there shouldn't be any shortage of vitamin D at all. So, uh, zinc and sunshine uh, will improve our immune system, um, improve, uh, reduce immune senescence, reduce the inflammatory bias, and, um, and uh, will make us healthier. It's not, it's surprising, but it's sad that in our society today, many of our elderly people are locked up in, old, in care homes for their, for their safety and uh, end up with a, a diet that's quite markedly deficient in zinc, usually, and also they're sunshine-deprived, and so it's not, not surprising that their immune systems become quite um, markedly senescent and exposes them to risk of dying from infections. Anyway, let's go back to vitamin D. How much do you need? Um, how much vitamin D does somebody need? Well, it depends. It's like asking how much... Insulin should a, a diabetic take? What's the healthy dose of insulin for, for a diabetic? Well, it depends on their blood glucose and many, many things. So you, the diabetic finds out by measuring their, their, their blood glucose and then working out a regime over weeks and months that works. But that will change with their diet. So equally, how much vitamin D do you need depends on how much vitamin D you have and how much you, you're going to keep on making. 
You make it by going out in the sun, and it needs to be uh, sun of a, uh, which uh, is, uh, of a certain wavelength. So uh, winter sun in the northern climates is where I am up in Canada. You've only got about four months where you can actually make vitamin D. Uh, if you sit behind a glass window, the sun, that, that, that wavelength is going to be filtered out as well, so you won't even make vitamin D then. So although you can still get sunburnt in the winter sun, you don't make vitamin D. Um, <coughs> that may explain um, some of the inflammatory diseases associated with living in the northern hemisphere, um, but it's not all just vitamin D. So sunlight uh, activates um, uh, systems in the skin, which then will then convert cholesterol uh, sub um, pro molecule in, into vitamin D, which then goes on gets activated by the liver and the kidneys. Um, we can see how in nature things are sort of edited and passed around and shared so that you don't just get a one organ providing something that the other organs may not want. So everyone has a say in things and this is the same for vitamin D. Ideally if you had a one or two hours of sun, sunshine on your skin, that's on your not just your face and arms but probably on your whole body, you're going to make about 10,000 units a day of, of vitamin D and this gets stored it's a fat-soluble molecule, so it sits in fat and is stored very actively for those winter months and for those times when there is no sunshine. So we don't need to make vitamin D every day. We can go for weeks and months without vitamin D, although those levels will gradually reduce. So obviously, the more sun you get, the less vitamin D supplementation you need. And the, the, again, we come back to obesity. If you have a big storage area, your vitamin D is going to be picked up by all those cells. And so the level in those cells for the same dose that you've either made from the sun or eaten is going to be lower. So you'll have a lower blood level and so therefore a lower effective level. So sunshine, being skinny, healthy, wild type, you're going to have good levels. Uh, staying out of the sun, being being overweight or being obese, um, uh, you're going, your levels are going to drop. And so the best thing would be to measure your levels and uh, and take as much as you need to get your blood level up to that level and then watch what happens over different seasons. Um, if you need a short answer, remember you make about 10,000 units of vitamin D equivalent a day by being in the sun, so that's not a bad sort of number to keep in your mind when you're thinking about, su about supplementing, particularly on days or weeks or months when you're not able to get out into the sun. Now, there's another very important enzyme that skin makes uh, under direction from sunlight, and that's called hemoxygenase. And I certainly hadn't really heard about it. So let's go back up a little bit. Um, it, as everybody knows, that hemoglobin um, is um, a molecule that can carry oxygen. So it's it's kept in little little uh, capsules called red blood cells that are beautifully shaped to allow maximum surface area to get that oxygen to go in and out of the red blood cell and carbon dioxide is working opposite. <coughs> um, so we need iron to, to, to attract the oxygen and then take it along and then the, then the oxygen gets dumped off in an area of the body where there's a lower oxygen tension. Now those, those red cells and that hemoglobin doesn't last long, so red cell turnover is about every three months or so. So every hemoglobin molecule is turned over in three months, and when it's broken down, there's that iron molecule that needs to be disposed of. Now, iron and oxygen, particularly iron and the free radical oxygen, uh, can, re can really create havoc in terms of producing uh, a molecule called uh, hydroxyl, or OH, which 
has the strongest and most lethal antioxidative uh, effects. So you really want to keep iron away from um, oxida any oxidation reactions if you can. And so we've evolved to have this enzyme called hemoxygenase, which disposes of broken down hemoglobin and the iron. <clears throat> and it's made in the skin with, with, with um, the help of sunlight. So again, sunlight is not just an, a vitamin D producer, but um, actually helps skin make about three or 400 different um, protein signaling systems. But a really strong one, particularly in this role, is hemoxygenase, which then would work as an antioxidant. <coughs> so let's come back to aldosterone again. Remember, it's increasing that uh, free radical to bind nitric oxide. And so we can... Um, We've developed antioxidant systems, and probably the easiest ones to know about, and the ones that everyone should know about, are vitamin C and glutathione. So um, these two work as a pair, and they literally end up taking that free radical, that oxygen with the extra electron, taking that electron, and, and actually taking away from oxygen and giving it to sulfur. The sulfur-electron bond is a lot more stable, and so sulfur is a better way to get rid of... Um, the the um, the, free, the extra electron, and so eventually that that free radical uh, signal is switched off. So let's come to vitamin C. All all animals in the world make vitamin C except primates, which includes humans and and guinea pigs. So we have the gene to make the enzyme to convert glucose into vitamin C. But somewhere along the line, tens of thousands of or hundreds of thousands of years ago, we lost the ability to transcript that enzyme, that gene to make the enzyme. And so we don't have the enzyme, which is called GULO-GULO um, protein, which would then convert glucose into vitamin C. It's interesting, especially those of you who are, are diabetics will know that when you, get the, when you get sick, your glucose levels go up and you need more insulin. Uh, so in times of stress, so if you take steroids, your glucose levels go up. And I suspect that's because in other animals, they use that higher glucose level, level quantity to make more vitamin C, which is going to counteract the oxidative effect of the, of the, of the inflammatory response to kill the invaders. <clears throat> and so um, we, don't, we don't make vitamin C, and at, when, at times when we're sick, we need more. Um, it looks like, you know, again, we're told, how much do you, vitamin C do you need? Well, to stop being severely vitamin D deficient, you need about three or 400 milligrams a day. Um, um, but that's, that's a severe deficiency. To be replete and have enough to be healthy, you probably need more like 1,000 milligrams a day because vitamin C is really good at me, is, is in, in, integral to making things like collagen, which is your connective tissue. Um, and then, of course, when you're sick, we know that animals will push their, their vitamin C production up 10 to 100-fold. So at, at times when you're sick, using that vitamin C is actually useful. It's not going to... Um, kill the virus, it's, uh, it's just going to reduce the oxidative stress from, from that virus and probably allow you to recover a bit quicker with a bit less of a severe disease. But it is dose um, responsive, right? <coughs> that vitamin C gets used up. And so it looks like studies done in, in intensive care units for people who are septic, it looks like six to 10,000 milligrams a day 
uh, is probably useful uh, and helpful uh, going higher than that may not be uh, in that situation. And to get those bigger doses, you need to go intravenous. So again, why not just have enough vitamin C in you and you have to consume it. It's not going in the sun or any other way. Vitamin C in humans needs to be consumed. Um, and yes, it's excreted, but it, it's excreted in its used up form. And so it comes in, does its job, works as an antioxidant and away it goes. Some of it is stored and you might as well get your storage sites f f um, filled up. Now, vitamin C then passes that electron onto, onto glutathione. And glutathione is a is three um, amino acids, and the middle one of the three, it's almost like it's got two sidekicks looking after it, is an amino acid called cysteine. And cysteine is one of two amino acids that have sulfur in it. And that sulfur gives it a peculiar smell, and that's what you associate with things like garlic and broccoli. Um, and um, you also get it, so you get in vegetables and meat. Um, so um, the cysteine when it uh, is converted into glutathione and the whole system is sort of regulated by glutathione peroxidase, which is another enzyme. Now the key to understanding glutathione peroxidase is that it is switched off by a high glucose level. So diabetics who suffer a lot of excessive oxidative stress, uh, one, of the, one of the ways that this is, is done and why it's related to poorly controlled diabetes is the high glucose level switches off glutathione peroxidase, which then results in increased uh, vascular oxidative stress, which then rapidly speeds up oxidative disease. Interestingly, diabetics who smoke, who have more oxidative stress, will, will get uh, disease quicker. Diabetics, diabetics who eat poorly will, 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 will get uh, vascular effects quicker. Obese diabetics with hypertension who smoke and eat poorly uh, will end up with uh, uh, complications uh, as, you know, within five to 10 years of being diabetic. Another little unknown thing is that acetaminophen, or Tylenol, is metabolized in the liver and does, uh, does affect glutathione levels. And in fact, an overdose of Tylenol when it causes death causes liver failure from deficiency in glutathione and cysteine itself. And the treatment, if given early enough, which is cysteine, in a form that's as absorbable called N-acetylcysteine, will actually prevent, prevent that, that overdose uh, person from, from dying. And so, uh, you know, chronic use of um, acetaminophen is, 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 is quite, it's quite common. We use it when we're ill, but it probably also has a little bit of a role in oxidative stress indirectly by gobbling up our, um, cysteine and therefore glutathione. So it's, it's again, um, this is not a, a lecture series about uh, naturopathy and where to get supplements from. But when you hear people talking about antioxidants and N-acetylcysteine uh, and also how diabetics have an increased risk of dying with COVID, uh, this may play a very integral role uh, because of the, uh, the oxidative nature of the illness and the antioxidant um, effects that, that diabetes has. <coughs> so we've looked at zinc, vitamin D, and vitamin C, and sunlight uh, involved in, in COVID. Um, and you can see these often end up on sort of fringe websites uh, saying that these things work, but there's no really evidence for it. Um, I just want to say that there's not, only, there's not only evidence for it, but there's also mechanisms. And I think once you understand the mechanisms of how, how things work, then it's easier to appreciate whatever research is done. And you can see how sometimes the research can, can be flawed and not really um, 
show any benefit um, because of the way the research was actually was actually carried out, which showed no real understanding of the of the mechanisms of these of these things. So um, again, we've we've got some natural things that really shouldn't be discounted. They're free. They're safe, and uh, and nature really does do it best. And again, we have a whole cadre of humans who don't do badly with the disease. So what's special about them? What's different from them, from the kind of person that we see in ICU dying? And we need to just um, really pick apart the science and, and the differences, and then the whole thing becomes quite clear. So the next step then is to say, well, we can make ourselves stronger, but what, what, if, we could, what if we could interfere with the virus? Right? Can, we, can we somehow make it harder for the virus? itself can we put some impediments to the virus because the virus has got to come in get undressed replicate itself uh, address all of those little offspring and off they go again <coughs> so what if you could interfere with that system now we know that viruses have been around forever and so all living living creatures or living cells on earth have evolved a viral defense mechanism Otherwise, they wouldn't be here. So they've all learned to live with viruses. And uh, one of some of our best friends, which are plants, uh, also get infected by viruses. And so they make different chemicals that will impair viruses. Remember, humans do too. We make surfactant in our lung, which is a, 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 a set of proteins that will actually bind to viruses and stop them getting into our lungs. And so it's not, it's therefore, it's, it's, it's not unusual or not surprising that at plants, and we, we call them the ones we like are herbs, uh, will make uh, compounds that will significantly um, stop viruses from, from surviving. Uh, there are many herbals that work. The Chinese have a slew of them. The North American um, <coughs> uh, 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 native people have um, uh, herbals that work. And again, I don't want this to be be for me to be um, talking at length about supplements, but just really where they fit in. Now, the basis of the pharmaceutical industry was actually came from using herbal medication. So um, humans over the millenniums, millennia have uh, realized that, that certain plants will work in certain illnesses, and that's translated into the pharmaceutical industry, where it's a bit more, there's a bit more chemistry involved, the product is a bit more controlled and pure, but still, we're making a, a compound that interferes with um, some 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 disease process, and the two that are associated with um, COVID are ivermectin and HCQ hydroxychloroquine. So ivermectin is is used against um, uh, parasites, and hydroxychloroquine also against parasites, uh, malaria, and so these chemicals are quite safe to be quite safe to take. Humans have been using them for decades and, and more, um, and they can also be taken prophylactically, and they interfere with the, interfere with the viruses or the, or the invading organism, organism's reproductive cycle. Um, so again, we, we're going to pick up something that, yes, it's from the pharmacy, but yes, it's fairly safe and can be used either prophylactically or early on in the disease. The, the trick is to use it early on when the virus is still replicating and not later on when we've got into COVID syndrome, which is just the, the after effect of uh, the viral inflammation and aldosterone-induced inflammation. <coughs> so if we can change our phenotype to a healthy state by reducing and reduce aldosterone activity, we can change our inflammation bias to be non-inflammatory by sunlight through vitamin D, hemoxygenase, and zinc. We can really 
very simply increase our antioxidant levels by paying attention to things like vitamin C and glutathione. There are many other antioxidants and they all work together, um, but the, the two sort of, the, 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 the sort of dynamic duo in our system is actually vitamin C and N-acetylcysteine because they, we've evolved with those, although humans lost vitamin C along the way. It doesn't mean to say it's not important. We just have, we live without it because we can eat so much of it through our um, plant-based diet. We've now got two drugs, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, that can be used either prophylactically or early on in the disease uh, to act as a, as a herbal. And there are many, many other herbals um, that, 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 that can be found and bought um, from quite reputable people that have a, a long history of, of being very effective, even in the last SARS outbreak. Now, <clears throat> the other thing we come down to then is a, a pharma further looking at the pharmaceutical industry. We know that this is a renin-angiotensin system disease, and so are there drugs that will block this system from, from being overactive? And the answer is yes. Um, we can use ACE inhibitors, uh, which, which then block the, the, the protease that's, that cuts the signal, that edits the, the little messenger and turns it into angiotensin II. Which is, which is pro-inflammatory, raises your blood pressure, so we can reduce that enzyme's activity. <coughs> we can block the receptor that angiotensin II binds to, and that's called an angiotensin receptor blocker. Those drugs' generic names end in sartan, so we call those the sartan drugs. And then we can go further down and block the mineralocorticoid receptor, which is where aldosterone works. Remember, angiotensin calls up aldosterone to come and help, and aldosterone um, works again in the nucleus to get genes to activate and transcribe and make proteins. So that receptor is on the inside of the cell and um, on the nuclear membrane. And the two drugs that we have is spironolactone, which is very well known, it's been around for 50 years, and then a pleronone, which is very very little known, as I think is a, is a very nice drug, but has, has hardly seen any use. Um, and the last of all, um, dexamethasone, which everyone's heard of, which is a steroid-like molecule which decreases aldosterone production, so it suppresses aldosterone production. It's not directly a steroid. I, I don't know this for sure, but it probably doesn't bind to an oxidized mineral corticoid receptor as, the, as, the, as cortisol does. So in an oxidized state, when you're sick, uh, cortisol will actually work like, uh, like aldosterone, and you really don't want that in this situation. And that's why hydrosteroids can be actually counterproductive and may have accounted for many of the deaths during SARS um, epid uh, outbreak um, 17 years ago. So we can prevent excessive aldosterone um, derangements with inflammation oxidation causing edema and also sodium retention, potassium loss also contributing to edema and those electrolyte imbalances and oxidation, oxygenation difficulties with the lung which are then causing acute death. Right? Um, so just review then, looking at this, none of those um, strategies are either dangerous, expensive or life-threatening. They don't give an advantage to anyone who's advocating for them. Um, there's no conflict of interest from, from people who are sort of trying to highlight the science. The science is very deep. The science goes back 30, 40 years, um, is published in peer-reviewed journals. It is all uh, disparate and, and separated, and it's hard to bring it all together. It's certainly taken me a few years to do that. Um, but in making yourself healthy and robust and being a wild-type human against this virus, you're doing that for many other things. Um, and although 
we know that wild-type animals are healthier. Um, they may not live as long as a domestic animal, um, but they die from, from wild-type things like, um, like being attacked and eaten by other, uh, by other creatures. And so could humans get the best of both? Could we have a wild-type phenotype but live in a, in a domesticated, domestic environment uh, where we were relatively healthy? Um, so this, this virus, again, has come to challenge us and to challenge our ability to respond to it. Just a little quick editorial note, you know, if, uh, as, as, as uh, the human condition and the human psyche, we've been conditioned over centuries to believe that salvation and passage to heaven and to the afterlife was through, was through the church. Um, but it came at a fee, right? As long as we were card-carrying members of the church and we were blessed and had filled all the rights of whichever church had, had got to us first, we were promised salvation and, and, a, and a free passage to heaven. Um, over the last 50, 50, 100 years, we've kind of moved away from religion. Our new religion is now science and health. And again, if uh, you obey the, health, the healthcare industry, you are promised the best um, survival rate um, and and the best health if you listen to the to the practitioners, and again it's it's at a fee, it's a rather exorbitant fee. Freedom from <clears throat> from those types of tyranny uh, is scary because freedom requires you to take responsibility for yourself. So. Um, as we've done with religion, people have largely worked out that we don't need an agent to get to heaven, that we can do this ourselves, that we can have a covenant, a covenant which, with, with our understanding and our interpretation of God, and um, we don't need to pay a fee. Um, and there are some of us amongst us who realize that we, the same thing can happen with the healthcare industry, that we don't need to treat our high blood pressure with, with medications, that we can do it, we can do it naturally. And so, um, again, with this COVID-19 um, epidemic, we can listen to what's, what's told of us. And I know in my hospital, people get put on oxygen, um, a bit of dexamethasone, and they just write it out and see, see if they survive. Um, when in fact, there are lots of lots of things we can do to both prevent being really, really sick and to survive the illness and get through fairly unscathed. At the moment, we have no one to blame for this epidemic. We have no one to blame for the treatment that's being offered. Uh, we are told it's the best options there are, and this is all peer-reviewed and scientific, and we are to believe the science. We are to not believe any of the, the pseudoscience, which is anything that's not owned by the health, by the health uh, system. So let's go back. Um, let's ignore conspiracy. Um, humans are now being challenged with the virus that um, is literally attacking the phenotypic humans who are domesticated, uh, who are overweight, unfit, unhealthy, <coughs> malnourished, and who, and all of us who don't have an understanding of uh, the renin-angiotensin system, which is one of the most powerful systems in our body, and in fact within this pandemic is literally the loaded gun that is killing some of us. Mm -hmm.